0: section 25 of the journal of a tour to the hebrides with samuel johnson by james boswell this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by anthony ogus wednesday 10th november old mr drummond the bookseller came to breakfast dr johnson and he had not met for 10 years there was respect on his side and kindness on dr johnson Soon afterwards Lord Elibank came in and was much pleased at seeing Dr. Johnson in Scotland. His lordship said hardly anything seemed to him more improbable. Dr. Johnson had a very high opinion of him. Speaking of him to me he characterised him thus. Lord Elibank has read a great deal. It is true I can find in books all that he has read, but he has a great deal of what is in books, proved by the test of real life. Indeed, there have been few men whose conversation discovered more knowledge enlivened by fancy. He published several small pieces of distinguished merit and has left some in manuscript, in particular an account of the expedition against Carthagena in which he served as an officer in the army. His writings deserve to be collected. He was the early patron of Dr. Robertson the historian and Mr. Hume the tragic poet who, when they were ministers of country parishes, lived near his seat. He told me, I saw these lads had talent, and they were much with me. I hope they'll pay a grateful tribute to his memory. The morning was chiefly taken up by Dr Johnson's giving him an account of our tour. The subject of difference in political principles was introduced. Johnson, it is much increased by opposition. There was a violent Whig, with whom I used to contend with great eagerness. After his death I felt my Toryism much abated. I suppose he met Mr. Wormsley of Litchfield, whose character he has drawn so well in his life of Edmund Smith. Mr. Nairn came in, and he and I accompanied Dr. Johnson to Edinburgh Castle, which he owned was a great place. But I must mention as a striking instance of that spirit of contradiction to which he had a strong propensity, When Lord Ellibank was some days after talking of it with the natural elation of a Scotchman or of any man who is proud of a stately fortress in his own country, Dr. Johnson affected to despise it, observing that it would make a good prison in England. Lest it should be supposed that I have suppressed one of his sallies against my country, it may not be improper here to correct a mistaken account that has been circulated as to his conversation this day it has been said that being desired to attend to the noble prospect from the castle hill he replied sir the noblest prospect that a scotchman ever sees is the high road that leads him to london this lively sarcasm was thrown out at a tavern in london in my presence many years before we had with us today at dinner at my house the lady dowager colville and lady anne erskine sisters of the earl of kelly the honourable archibald erskine who has now succeeded to that title lord elibank the reverend dr blair mr titler the acute vindicator of mary queen of scots and some other friends fingal being talked of dr johnson who used to boast that he had from the first resisted both ossian and the giants of patagonia averred his positive disbelief of its authenticity lord elibank said "'I am sure it is not Mr Macpherson's. "'Mr Johnson, I keep company a great deal with you. "'It is known I do. "'I may borrow from you better things than I can say myself "'and give them as my own. "'But if I should, everybody will know whose they are.' "'The doctor was not softened by this compliment. "'He denied merit to Fingal, "'supposing it to be the production of a man "'who has had the advantages that the present age affords, "'and said, Nothing is more easy than to write enough in that style if once you begin. One gentleman in company expressed his opinion that Finger was certainly genuine, for that he had heard a great part of it repeated in the original. Dr Johnson indignantly asked him whether he understood the original, to which an answer being given in the negative, Why then, said Dr Johnson, we see to what this testimony comes. Thus it is i mentioned this as a remarkable proof how liable the mind of man is to credulity when not guarded by such strict examination as that which dr johnson habitually practised the talents and integrity of the gentleman who made the remark were unquestionable yet had not dr johnson made him advert to the consideration that he who does not understand a language cannot know that something which is recited to him is in that language he might have believed and reported to this hour that he had heard a great part of fingal repeated in the original for the satisfaction of those on the north of the tweed who may think dr johnson's account of caledonian credulity and inaccuracy too strong it is but fair to add that he admitted the same kind of ready belief might be found in his own country he would undertake he said to write an epic poem on the story of robin hood and half england to whom the names and places he should mention in it are familiar would believe and declare they had heard it from their earliest years one of his objections to the authenticity of fingal during the conversation at alanish is omitted in my journal but i perfectly recollect it why is not the original deposited in some public library instead of exhibiting attestations of its existence suppose there were a question in a court of justice whether a man be dead or alive you aver he is alive and you bring fifty witnesses to swear it i answer why do you not produce the man this is an argument founded on one of the first principles of the law of evidence which gilbert would have held to be irrefragable i do not think it incumbent on me to give any precise decided opinion upon this question as to which i believe more than some and less than others The subject appears to have now become very uninteresting to the public. That Fingal is not from beginning to end a translation from the Gallic, but that some passages have been supplied by the editor to connect the whole, I have heard admitted by very warm advocates for its authenticity. If this be the case, why are not these distinctly ascertained? antiquaries and admirers of the work may complain that they are in a situation similar to that of the unhappy gentleman whose wife informed him on her deathbed that one of their reputed children was not his and when he eagerly begged her to declare which of them it was she answered that you shall never know and expired leaving him in irremediable doubt as to them all I beg leave now to say something upon second sight of which I have related two instances as they impressed my mind at the time. I own I returned from the Hebrides with a considerable degree of faith in the many stories of that kind which I heard with a too easy acquiescence, without any close examination of the evidence. But since that time my belief in those stories has been much weakened by reflecting on the careless inaccuracy of narrative in common matters from which we may certainly conclude that there may be the same in what is more extraordinary it is but just however to add that the belief in second sight is not peculiar to the highland and isles some years after our tour a cause was tried in the court of session Where the principal fact to be ascertained was whether a shipmaster, who used to frequent the western highlands and isles, was drowned in one particular year or in the year after. A great number of witnesses from those parts were examined on each side and swore directly contrary to each other upon this simple question. One of them, a very respectable chieftain, who told me a story of second sight which I have not mentioned but which I too implicitly believed, had in this case previous to this public examination not only said but attested under his hand that he had seen the shipmaster in the year subsequent to that in which the court was finally satisfied he was drowned when interrogated with the strictness of judicial inquiry and under the awe of an oath he recollected himself better and retracted what he had formerly asserted apologising for his inaccuracy by telling the judges a man will say what he will not swear by many he was much censured and it was maintained that every gentleman would be as attentive to truth without the sanction of an oath as with it dr johnson though he himself was distinguished at all times by a scrupulous adherence to truth controverted this proposition and as a proof that this was not though it ought to be the case urge the very different decisions of elections under mr grenville's act from those formerly made gentlemen will not pronounce upon oath what they would have said and voted in the house without that sanction however difficult it may be for men who believe in preternatural communications in modern times to satisfy those who are of a different opinion they may easily refute the doctrine of their opponents who impute a belief in second sight to superstition. To entertain a visionary motion that one sees a distant or future event may be called superstition, but the correspondence of the fact or event with such an impression on the fancy, though certainly very wonderful if proved, has no more connection with superstition than magnetism or electricity. After dinner various topics were discussed, but I recollect only one particular. Dr Johnson compared the different talents of Garrick and Foote as companions and gave Garrick greatly the preference for elegance, though he allowed Foote extraordinary powers of entertainment. He said, Garrick is restrained by some principle, but Foote has the advantage of an unlimited range. Garrick has some delicacy of feeling." it is possible to put him out you may get the better of him but foot is the most incompressible fellow that i ever knew when you have driven him into a corner and think you are sure of him he runs through between your legs or jumps over your head and makes his escape dr erskine and mr robert walker two very respectable ministers of edinburgh supped with us as did the reverend dr webster The conversation turned on the Moravian missions and on the Methodists. Dr Johnson observed in general that missionaries were too sanguine in their accounts of their success among savages and that much of what they tell is not to be believed. He owned that the Methodists had done good, had spread religious impressions among the vulgar part of mankind. But, he said, they had great bitterness against other Christians, and that he never could get a methodist to explain in what he excelled others that it always ended in the indispensable necessity of hearing one of their preachers thursday eleventh november principal robertson came to us as we sat at breakfast he advanced to dr johnson repeating a line of virgil which i forget i suppose either post various casus pertot discriminarerum or et terris jactatus et alto everybody had accosted us with some studied compliment on our return dr johnson said i am really ashamed of the congratulations which we receive we are addressed as if we had made a voyage to nova zembla and suffered five persecutions in japan and he afterwards remarked that to see a man come up with a formal air and a latin line when we had no fatigue and no danger was provoke him. i told him he was not sensible of the danger having lain under cover in the boat during the storm he was like the chicken that hides its head under its wing and then thinks itself safe lord ellibank came to us as did sir william forbes the rash attempt in 1745 being mentioned I observed that it would make a fine piece of history dr johnson said it would lord Elibank doubted whether any man of this age could give it impartially johnson a man by talking with those of different sides who are actors in it and putting down all that he hears may in time collect the materials of a good narrative you are to consider all history was at first oral i suppose voltaire was fifty years in collecting his louis the fourteenth which he did in the way that I am proposing. Robertson, he did so, he lived much with all the great people who were concerned in that reign, and heard them talk of everything, and then either took Mr. Boswell's way of writing down what he heard, or, which is as good, preserved it in his memory, for he has a wonderful memory. With the leave, however, of this elegant historian, no man's memory can preserve facts or sayings with such fidelity as may be done by writing them down when they are recent. Dr. Robertson said, It was now full time to make such a collection as Dr. Johnson suggested, for many of the people who were then in arms were dropping off, and both Whigs and Jacobites were now come to talk with moderation. Lord Elibank said to him, Mr. Robertson, the first thing that gave me a high opinion of you was your saying in the select society while parties ran high soon after the year 1745 that you did not think worse of a man's moral character for his having been in rebellion. This was venturing to utter a liberal sentiment while both sides had a detestation of each other. Dr Johnson observed that being in rebellion from a notion of another's right was not connected with depravity and that we had this proof of it that all mankind applauded the pardoning of rebels which they would not do in the case of robbers and murderers. He said with a smile that he wondered that the phrase of unnatural rebellion should be so much used, for that all rebellion was natural to man. As I kept no journal of anything that passed after this morning, I shall from memory group together this and the other days till that on which Dr. Johnson departed for London, they were in all nine days on which he dined at lady colville's lord hale's sir adolphus orton's sir alexander dick's principal robertson's mr mclaurin's and thrice at lord ellibank's seat in the country where we also passed two nights he supped at the honourable alexander gordon's now one of our judges by the title of lord rockville at mr nairns now also one of our judges by the title of lord Dunsinane, at dr blair's and mr titler's and at my house thrice, one evening, with a numerous company, chiefly gentlemen of the law, another with Mr. Mendes of Caldare's, and Lord Monboddo, who disengaged himself on purpose to meet him and the evening on which we returned from Lord Alibanks, he supped with my wife and me by ourselves. He breakfasted at Dr. Webster's at Old Mr. Drummond's and at Dr. Blacklock's and spent one forenoon at my uncle dr boswell's who showed him his curious museum and as he was an elegant scholar and a physician bred in the school of Boerhaave, dr johnson was pleased with his company on the mornings when he breakfasted at my house he had from ten o'clock till one or two a constant levee of various persons of very different characters and descriptions I could not attend him, being obliged to be in the court of session, but my wife was so good as to devote the greater part of the morning to the endless task of pouring out tea for my friend and his visitors. Such was the disposition of his time at Edinburgh. He said one evening to me in a fit of languor, Sir, we have been harassed by invitations. I acquiesced. Aye, sir, he replied, but how much worse would it have been if we had been neglected? from what has been recorded in this journal it may well be supposed that a variety of admirable conversation has been lost by my neglect to preserve it i shall endeavour to recollect some of it as well as i can at lady colville's to whom i am proud to introduce any stranger of eminence that he may see what dignity and grace is to be found in scotland an officer observed that he had heard lord mansfield was not a great english lawyer johnson why sir supposing lord mansfield not to have the splendid talents which he possesses he must be a great english lawyer from having been so long at the bar and having passed through so many of the great offices of the law sir you may as well maintain that a carrier who has driven a pack horse between Edinburgh and berwick for thirty years does not know the road as that lord mansfield does not know the law of england at mr nairns he drew the character of richardson the author of clarissa with a strong yet delicate pencil i lament much that i have not preserved it i only remember that he expressed a high opinion of his talents and virtues but observed that his perpetual study was to ward off petty inconveniences and procure petty pleasures that his love of continual superiority was such that he took care to be always surrounded by women who listened to him implicitly and did not venture to controvert his opinions and that his desire of distinction was so great that he used to give large veils to the speaker onslow's servants that they might treat him with respect on the same evening he would not allow that the private life of a judge in england was required to be so strictly decorous as i supposed why then sir said i according to your account An English judge may just live like a gentleman. Johnson, yes, sir, if he can. At Mr. Titler's I happened to tell that one evening, a great many years ago, when Dr. Hugh Blair and I were sitting together in the pit of Drury Lane Playhouse in a wild freak of youthful extravagance, I entertained the audience prodigiously by imitating the lowing of a cow. A little while after I had told this story, I differed from Dr Johnson, I suppose too confidently, upon some point, which I now forget. He did not spare me. "'Nay, sir,' said he, "'if you cannot talk better as a man, I'd have you bellow like a cow.' At Dr Webster's he said that he believed hardly any man died without affectation. This remark appears to me to be well founded and will account for many on the celebrated deathbed sayings which are recorded. On one of the evenings at my house, when he told that Lord Lovett boasted to an English nobleman that though he had not his wealth, he had two thousand men whom he could at any time call into the field, the Honourable Alexander Gordon observed that those two thousand men brought him to the block. "'True, sir,' said Dr Johnson, but you may just as well argue concerning a man who has fallen over a precipice to which he has walked too near. His two legs brought him to that. Is he not the better for having two legs? At Dr Blair's I left him in order to attend a consultation, during which he and his amiable host were by themselves. I returned to supper, at which were Principal Robertson, Mr Nairn, and some other gentlemen. Dr. Robertson and Dr. Blair, I remember, talked well upon subordination and government, and as my friend and I were walking home, he said to me, Sir, these two doctors are good men and wise men. I begged of Dr. Blair to recollect what he could of the long conversation that passed between Dr. Johnson and him alone this evening, and he obligingly wrote to me as follows. March 3rd, 1785 Dear Sir, as so many years have intervened since i chanced to have that conversation with dr johnson in my house to which you refer i have forgotten most of what then passed but remember that i was both instructed and entertained by it among other subjects the discourse happening to turn on modern latin poets the doctor expressed a very favourable opinion of buchanan and instantly repeated from beginning to end an ode of his, intituled Calendai Maiae, the eleventh in his Missa beginning with these words, Salvete Sacris de with which I had formerly been unacquainted. But upon perusing it, the praise which he bestowed upon it as one of the happiest of Buchanan's poetical compositions, appeared to me very just. He also repeated to me a Latin ode he had composed in one of the western islands, from which he had lately returned. We had much discourse concerning his excursion to those islands, with which he expressed himself as having been highly pleased, talked in a favourable manner of the hospitality of the inhabitants, and particularly spoke much of his happiness in having you for his companion, and said that the longer he knew you he loved and esteemed you the more this conversation passed in the interval between tea and supper when we were by ourselves you and the rest of the company who were with us at supper have often taken notice that he was uncommonly bland and gay that evening and gave much pleasure to all who were present this is all that i can recollect distinctly of that long conversation yours sincerely hugh blair at lord hale's we spent a most agreeable day but again I must lament that I was so indolent as to let almost all that passed evaporate into oblivion. Dr. Johnson observed there that "'It is wonderful how ignorant many officers of the army are, considering how much leisure they have for study on the acquisition of knowledge.' I hope he was mistaken, for he maintained that many of them were ignorant of things belonging immediately to their own profession.' for instance many cannot tell how far a musket will carry a bullet in proof of which i suppose he mentions some particular person for lord hales from whom i solicited what he could recollect of that day writes to me as follows as to dr johnson's observation about the ignorance of officers in the length that a musket would carry my brother colonel dalrymple was present and he thought that the doctor was either mistaken by putting the question wrong, or that he had conversed on the subject with some person out of service. Was it upon that occasion that he expressed no curiosity to see the room at Dunfermline, where Charles I was born? I know that he was born, said he, no matter where. Did he envy us the birthplace of the King?' near the end of his journey dr johnson has given liberal praise to mr braidwood's academy for the deaf and dumb when he visited it a circumstance occurred which was truly characteristical of our great lexicographer "Pray," said he can they pronounce any long words mr braidwood informed him they could upon which dr johnson wrote one of his sequipedalia verba which was pronounced by the scholars and he was satisfied my readers may perhaps wish to know what the word was, but I cannot gratify their curiosity. Mr. Braidwood told me it remained long in his school, but had been lost before I made my inquiry. Dr. Johnson one day visited the court of session. He thought the mode of pleading there too vehement and too much addressed to the passions of the judges. "'This,' said he, "'is not the Aropagus. At old Mr. Drummond, Sir John Dalrymple quaintly said the two noblest animals in the world were a Scotch Highlander and an English sailor. Why, sir, said Dr. Johnson, I shall say nothing as to the Scotch Highlander, but as to the English sailor, I cannot agree with you. Sir Johnson said he was generous at giving away his money. Johnson, sir, he throws away his money without thought and without merit. I do not call a tree generous that sheds its fruit at every breeze. Sir John having affected to complain of the attacks made upon his memoirs, Dr Johnson said, Nay, sir, do not complain. It is advantageous to an author that his book should be attacked as well as praised. Fame is a shuttlecock. If it be struck only at one end of the room, it will soon fall to the ground. To keep it up, it must be struck at both ends often have i reflected on this since and instead of being angry at many of those who have written against me have smiled to think that they were unintentionally subservient to my fame by using a battle-door to make me virum volitari per aura at sir alexander Dick's, from that absence of mind to which every man is at times subject i told in a blundering manner lady eglinton's complimentary adoption of dr johnson as her son for I unfortunately stated that her ladyship adopted him as her son, in consequence of her having been married the year after he was born. Dr. Johnson instantly corrected me, Sir, don't you perceive that you are defaming the Countess? For supposing me to be her son, and that she was not married till the year after my birth, I must have been her natural son. A young lady of quality who was present very handsomely said, might not the son have justified the fault my friend was much flattered by this compliment which he never forgot when in more than ordinary spirits and talking of his journey in scotland he has called to me boswell what was it that the young lady of quality have said of me at sir alexander dick's nobody will doubt that i was happy in repeating it my illustrious friend being now desirous to be again in the great theatre of life an animated exertion took a place in the coach which was to set out for London on Monday the 22nd of November. Sir John Dalrymple pressed him to come on the Saturday before to his house at Cranston, which being 12 miles from Edinburgh upon the middle road to Newcastle Dr Johnson had come to Edinburgh by Berwick and along the naked coast, it would make his journey easier as the coach would take him up at a more seasonable hour than that at which it sets out. Sir John, I perceived, was ambitious of having such a guest, but as I was well assured that at this very time he had joined with some of his prejudiced countrymen in railing at Dr Johnson, and had said he wondered how any gentleman of Scotland could keep company with him, I thought he did not deserve the honour. Yet, as it might be a convenience to Dr Johnson, I contrived that he should accept the invitation and engage to conduct him. I resolved that on our way to Sir John's we should make a little circuit by Roslyn Castle and Hawthorndon, and wished to set out soon after breakfast, but young Mr. Titler came to show Dr. Johnson some essays which he had written, and my great friend, who was exceedingly obliging when thus consulted, was detained so long that it was, I believe, one o'clock before we got into our post-chaise i found that we should be too late for dinner at sir john dalrymple's to which we were engaged but i would by no means lose the pleasure of seeing my friend at hawthorndon of seeing sam johnson at the very spot where ben johnson visited the learned and poetical drummond we surveyed rosalind castle the romantic scene around it and the beautiful gothic chapel and dined and drank tea at the inn after which we proceeded to Hawthornden and viewed the caves, and I all the while had rare Ben in my mind, and was pleased to think that this place was now visited by another celebrated wit of England. By this time the waning night was growing old, and we were yet several miles from Sir John Dalrymple's. Dr. Johnson did not seem much troubled at our having treated the baronet with so little attention to politeness But when I talked of the grievous disappointment it must have been to him that we did not come to the feast that he had prepared for us, for he told us he had killed a seven-year-old sheep on purpose, my friend got into a merry mood, and jocularly said, I dare say, sir, he has been very sadly distressed. Nay, we do not know, but the consequence may have been fatal. Let me try to describe his situation in his own historical style. I have as good a right to make him think and talk, as he has to tell us how people thought and talked a hundred years ago of which he has no evidence all history so far as it is not supported by contemporary evidence is romance stay now let us consider he then heartily laughing all the while proceeded in his imitation i am sure to the following effect though now at the distance of almost twelve years i cannot pretend to recollect all the precise words Dinner being ready he wondered that his guests were not yet come. His wonder was soon succeeded by impatience. He walked along the room in anxious agitation. Sometimes he looked at his watch, sometimes he looked out at the window with an eager gaze of expectation and revolved in his mind the various accidents of human life. His family beheld him with mute concern. Surely, said he with a sigh, they will not fail me. The mind of man can bear a certain pressure, but there is a point when it can bear no more. A rope was in his view, and he died a Roman death. It was very late before we reached the seat of Sir John Dalrymple, who certainly with some reason was not in a very good humour. Our conversation was not brilliant. We supped and went to bed in ancient rooms which would have been better suited the climate of Italy in summer than that of Scotland in the month of November. I recollect no conversation of the next day worth preserving except one saying of Dr. Johnson which will be a valuable text for many decent old dowagers and other good company in various circles to descant upon. He said, I am sorry I have not learned to play at cards. It is very useful in life it generates kindness and consolidates society he certainly could not mean deep play my friend and i thought we should be more comfortable at the inn at Blackshields, two miles farther on we therefore went thither in the evening and he was very entertaining but i have preserved nothing but the pleasing remembrance and his verses on george the second and Sibber, and his epitaph on parnell which he was then so good as to dictate to me we breakfasted together next morning and then the coach came and took him up he had as one of his companions in it as far as newcastle the worthy and ingenious dr hope botanical professor at edinburgh both dr johnson and he used to speak of their good fortune in thus accidentally meeting for they had much instructive conversation which is always a most valuable enjoyment and when found where it is not expected is particularly relished I have now completed my account of our tour to the Hebrides. I have brought Dr. Johnson down to Scotland and seen him into the coach which in a few hours carried him back into England. He said to me often that the time he spent in this tour was the pleasantest part of his life and asked me if I would lose the recollection of it for £500. I answered I would not and he applauded my setting such a value on an accession of new images in my mind. Had it not been for me, I am persuaded Dr. Johnson never would have undertaken such a journey, and I must be allowed to assume some merit from having been the cause that our language has been enriched with such a book as that which he published on his return. A book which I never read, but with the utmost admiration, as I had such opportunities of knowing from what very meagre materials it was composed. End of section 25 End of the journal of A Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell